3: Good evening, I'm Scott Wapner. On day 120 of the coronavirus crisis, more states making plans to reopen this evening as the U.S. death toll about to hit 56,000.
4: The testing is going really well. Tests for the virus and antibodies.
5: If it's done carefully, I think it's fine.
4: A new initiative is underway to help Americans get back to work soon. Stocks are higher across the board. Stocks rally on the optimism. Also, if we're going to welcome students back, we got to get started now. What schools are doing to bring back the students? Will solutions include summer school? This CNBC special report, Markets in Turmoil, begins right now. Here's Scott Wapner. It is good to have you back with us on this Monday evening. Let's
3: take you to the futures, give you your first look at how Wall Street could open tomorrow. Fairly muted, looks like a fairly fairly flat open. After a pretty decent day on Wall Street, the Dow closed back above 24,000, all up more than 1% with the major averages leading the way on the Dow today. A 4% gain for Disney, 3M, and J.P. Morgan. Meantime, more states this evening announcing plans to reopen. Texas's stay-at-home order expiring April 30th and won't be extended. Retail stores, malls, restaurants and theaters can reopen May 1st, but at 25 percent of capacity. Iowa's governor says 77 of the state's 99 counties can reopen some businesses uh, at half capacity. But farmers markets and elective surgeries restarted today. In Ohio, May 1st is the day for some health care services to resume manufacturing, distribution, construction and some other offices can reopen on May 4th consumer and retail businesses some 8 days later than that at tonight's white house briefing officials focused on expanded testing let's get the latest now from washington where our kayla taoshi is standing by hi kayla
6: Hi, Scott. The White House tonight is taking the wraps off a public-private partnership that would see testing expanded on-site at retail locations as many states try to continue reopening their economies. The effort underway would see grocery stores, pharmacies, and retail locations play host to many of these drive-up testing facilities. Today at the White House, executives from many of these companies discussed their plans to offer drive-up testing nationwide. CVS says it will offer 1.5 million monthly tests at 1,000 locations by the end of May. Walgreens and LabCorp expect to conduct 50,000 tests a week. Walmart is aiming to open 100 testing locations of its own. Those will run about 20,000 tests a week, and 10 of those locations are already up and running. The president first disclosed this drive-up testing effort led by senior advisor and his son-in-law, Jared Kushner, in early March. The ramp-up has taken time, but it's a necessary step to clearing employees and instilling confidence as the White House provides more details about how places of worship and even schools may reopen their doors.
4: I think you'll see a lot of schools open up, even if it's for a very short period of time. I think it would be a good thing uh, because, as you see, in terms of uh, uh, what this uh, vicious uh, virus uh, goes after, young people seem to do very well.
6: Now, we could see those guidelines released within the next week. There's currently fierce internal debate about exactly how to roll those out. So far, Scott, uh, 5.4 million tests have been conducted. That's roughly 1.6 percent of the U.S. population. But a senior administration official says the federal government stands ready to provide testing to states so that they can test up to 2 percent of their populations each month. Scott.
3: All right, Kayla, we appreciate it. That's Kayla Tausche reporting live for us tonight in Washington. Let's bring in now the CNBC contributor, Dr. Scott Gottlieb. He is, of course, the former head of the FDA. Dr. Gottlieb, good to see you again. We have this new blueprint from the White House. What is your reaction to it?
5: Well, look, it's another step in the right direction, getting more testing into the market. Um, Some of the key features here is that CDC is relaxing the recommendations to states on who can get tested, so really giving much more discretion to states to test people who might be mildly symptomatic or concerned that they were in contact with someone who had the disease. So I think it's going to broaden testing in the community. And the collaboration with the retail um, clinics like CVS is going to broaden the ability for people to get point-of-care testing in the community. They're opening up about a thousand sites, retail sites. It's going to bring about 1.5 million tests into the market, uh, assuming supplies last on a monthly basis. So that's a significant expansion in testing capacity. I think as we go through May and get into June, we're gonna see testing capacity ramp considerably. It's not all gonna be online in time for the reopening of aspects of economic activity in the states through May. But by the end of May, I think we're gonna have a much different situation in terms of the capacity to do testing and access to testing for consumers. You heard the president there mention the reopening of some schools before the school year
3: uh, is out. How should that work? What would your advice be this evening to the nation's school superintendents?
5: Well, look, different parts of the nation were affected very differently, and we've talked about that. Some parts of the nation haven't had broad epidemics, and they've seen sustained declines as about five or six states that meet the criteria set out by the federal government, set out in the plan that I put out, for a sustained reduction in new cases that might be able to reopen sooner than many other states. I think the ability to bring students back, even if it's just for three weeks, Um, to socialize them before the end of the school year makes sense if you can do it safely. I think there's a lot of states where school is going to be out for the whole year, certainly the states that were harder hit in the Northeast. I think you're likely to see schools not restart in those areas, even if decisions, final decisions haven't been made yet.
3: All right, let's move on to vaccines. You wrote in The Wall Street Journal, of course, an op-ed. Not sure if people have had the chance to see it. It's about winning the global race in uh, a
5: vaccine for COVID-19. Where are we, Dr. Gottlieb, in that race this evening? Well, there's about 70 vaccines in development right now. Six are in clinical trials. The Chinese are actually further ahead than anyone else. They have three vaccines in clinical development in advanced stages of clinical development, so phase two, phase three studies. And they came out over the weekend and said they may have a vaccine as early as next year that that would be licensed and broadly available There's two companies in the United States that have vaccines in clinical development right now. There's another couple of companies that will be putting vaccines into clinical development very soon. So we do have vaccines that are making progress here in the U.S. But the challenge is that any one manufacturer probably isn't going to have enough supply to supply the entire globe, certainly, but maybe not even supply their entire domestic market. And So I think the risk is that the countries that have vaccines that come onto the market, They're going to be supply constrained and they're going to hold on to a lot of that supply for their own domestic markets. Notwithstanding the fact that the Japanese and Europeans have said that they'll ensure equitable distribution of vaccines. If past history is any prologue here, then countries are going to hold on to enough vaccine to vaccinate their domestic populations before they allow a lot of supplies to be shipped. So it's very important that I think we make progress on a vaccine and try to get vaccines to the markets that we're not left behind.
3: Let's talk about that a little bit more. You say in in this op-ed, we need to, quote, engineer a development and regulatory process that is unprecedented in scope and urgency. Testing six or more candidate vaccines at once during a pandemic has never been tried
5: anywhere, but it can be done. Uh, You're confident we can do that? We've never done it before. And the challenge is going to be, there's two challenges here. One is putting multiple vaccines into clinical development. So just recruiting enough patients to simultaneously test so many vaccines Um, In a setting of outbreaks going into the fall, if we do have outbreaks, and I believe we will, it's going to get easier, unfortunately, to test those vaccines because you would deploy them in the setting of an outbreak to both try to provide a benefit as well as determine whether or not the vaccines are working. The other big challenge here is going to be manufacturing. Even if one manufacturer is successful here, it's very unlikely that a single manufacturer is going to be able to supply even the entire domestic market. So we're really dependent upon multiple manufacturers making it over the finish line here in the United States. And then we want to have enough vaccine to export it, especially to low and middle income countries that are locked out of this race altogether and are dependent upon the developed markets to try to get vaccines into those regions. Seem to be some promising news today from the group out of Oxford in the U.K. regarding
3: their vaccine uh, and the development there. What can you tell us? How promising is it?
5: It's another step in the right direction. This is a group that now has a vaccine that's shown uh, good immunogenicity in animal studies and has been put into people. They, they built this vaccine off a prior vaccine that they had to MERS. So they were able to get a head start. That's another form of coronavirus. They plan to be in um, about 6000 patients heading into the summer and the fall. And so they'll get a good early look on whether that vaccine is showing early signs of efficacy and whether it's showing signs of safety. But in order to license a vaccine here, we're going to have to put it in tens of thousands of people. This is a vaccine that's going to be widely deployed. You're literally going to inoculate an entire population and maybe an entire globe. So the assurance of safety that you're going to want is going to be very high. Nobody's going to license a vaccine before it's been put in tens of thousands of patients in randomized, rigorous studies to determine not just that it's working, but that it's safe. feels like a daunting task when you mention the kind of numbers that we're actually talking about. Let's talk about
3: a therapeutic, specifically Gilead's or remdesivir, a a potential treatment we've talked about on numerous occasions. You raised the issue as well about what would happen if that is actually approved in Japan and Europe before it's approved here in the United States. How would that work? How would the company have to handle that?
5: Well, it's a good question. Um, right now, the Japanese came out today and said that they may be in a position to license the vac- license that drug as early as uh, mid-May, early to mid-May. And so I think that statement surprised many people. That came from uh, the, the president, the, the leadership, the prime minister of uh, Japan, as well as some of their public health officials. Um, there's a limited supply, uh, and it's unclear what the United States would do. A lot of that supply is in the United States right now, and it's unclear whether or not the government would allow that supply to be shipped out of the country, even if the, the, the product itself is licensed in another country. Now, Gilead could stand up manufacturing in other countries, but it takes a long time to manufacture that product. And so even if Japan approved the product and tried to stand up manufacturing domestically in Japan, They're not going to have the drug right away. So the drug supply is really in the United States right now. And it's unclear what our government would do.
3: If you were still running the FDA, would you allow it to leave the country before it was used for our own citizens?
5: Yeah, I'll tell you that that decision is going to get made well above the level of the agency. And I suspect a decision like that might even go to the president's desk. Interesting. We'll follow that for certain. Stay with us, uh, if you would, Dr. Gottlieb, because
3: Arizona is ramping up its antibody test. A big story. Meg Terrell is with us live this evening. She has one of the doctors leading that effort. Meg.
0: Hi, Scott. So Arizona starting a massive testing effort for antibodies to the novel coronavirus plans to test up to 250,000 healthcare workers and first responders throughout Arizona. So joining us to discuss that effort is Dr. Michael Dake, Senior Vice President at the University of Arizona Health uh, Health Sciences. Uh, Dr. Dake, thank you so much for being here with us this evening. Tell us about this massive effort you're about to start and when you expect to see the first results and And your hypothesis, if you can give us uh, one at the outset, of what you might find.
7: Sure, Meg. Approximately three weeks ago, we committed to testing all 45,000 University of Arizona students, 15,000 faculty and staff. We developed this test within our labs, research labs in immunobiology and immunology at the university. And once it was developed and validated, we went to the state and said, is there any way this could be of use to you? And then they partnered with us, as you mentioned, to roll out 250,000 tests with a priority to healthcare workers and first responders. That effort will start off this Thursday. Uh, we announced today and people are signing up now online, pre-registering, uh, to go to these individual sites, over 30 around the state to get, uh, to get tested for, these are serology tests, obviously. They're not, uh, uh test nasal swabs to determine the virus, but rather any immunity uh, that people may have conferred to after having been exposed to the virus. And this, again, the state is, has prioritized these two groups because, in their mind, these are the ones that I think are maybe the most vulnerable and where we could learn the most about who's been exposed and what the seroprevalence rate is in the state. But it's possible this may go on beyond the 250,000 to other groups of workers.
0: Tell us about um, the validation of the antibody test, the specificity, the sensitivity, you know, the, the reliability of the test, really, and the expectation that you might see false positives or false negatives.
7: Sure, of course. Well, this test is uh, is, uh, is an antibody test, uh, and it's uh, directed against the coronavirus spike protein, uh, receptor binding domain. And we have right now a, a specificity of 997 that gets at the false positive rate, which obviously if you have a very low uh, incidence or positive prevalence in a state, if you have a 1% false positive rate, that could result in a lot of those tests that are positive being false. So 997 is very good, and we have a sensitivity of 95%. So we're really confident that this test is very accurate. It's a blood test. It's not a point-of-care finger stick, so everyone will have to go to a site and and have their blood drawn in a single tube and the results were reported out in 48 hours.
0: In your effort to also test um, all the 45,000 students at the university and the 15,000 employees, will you make decisions using the results about whether to start things back up, bring students back on campus?
7: Well, very much we'd like to bring students back on campus, and again, this is just one tool that we'll be using, including potential for uh, sort of self-quarantining a week before students come back, obviously the PCI test or nasal swabs or saliva testing, as well as contact tracing. And again, again, is to try to provide as much information possible to our students so that we can, in the most uh, sensitive way, try to blend uh, groups together, whether it's in a dormitory, whether we can certainly have dorms that are available for quarantine patients who become symptomatic, but it's a very different uh, sort of uh, procedure or or concept than what we're doing now with the state, because we expect for the students coming back, this will be a lot of serial testing. Uh, As mentioned by Dr. Gottlieb, there may be an outbreak in the fall. Obviously, we need to be prepared to deal with that. Certainly, if we can uh, uh, ascertain in a serial way what's going on with students in terms of their exposure, because it's very different than out in the general public, that we could use this information to, I think, best keep our students safe.
0: Um, I was looking at the numbers of uh, testing for current infection, those nasal swabs you mentioned that Arizona's done. Um, About 66,000 total tests, that breaks down to about 890 per 100,000 people in the state. And on a per capita basis, that's among the lowest in states and territories across the country. Uh, I saw that state officials were starting this Arizona testing blitz to try to increase that. But do you think that the state uh, just doesn't have as good of a picture of uh, infections there because of that lower testing rate? And will this really enhance that picture?
7: Well, that's a good question. I'm not really sure. I think Arizona, up to the size of its state, has been uh, one of the lowest uh, or in the, the lower group of, of actually incidents of COVID-19. These these testing blitzes are meant to go through 30,000 individuals and in, say a couple weekends. Uh, we're going to be standing up uh, a similar type thing. We've been supplying test kits around the state to various tribal nations. Uh, counties, et cetera, making our own test kits. Uh, but we personally are not performing the PCI test to look for the viral particle itself.
0: All right, Dr. Dake, well, stay tuned for your first results. We're eager to hear them. Thank you so much for being with us tonight. Scott, back to you.
7: Thank you very much, Meg. All right, Meg,
3: we appreciate that very much, uh, that of the doctor uh, as well. Dr. Gottlieb back uh, with us, an ambitious plan in Arizona. Your thoughts on it?
5: Look, that's the right thing to do. That's a big seroprevalence study. They're going to get, get a good indication of what the uh, background exposure is to coronavirus in that state. And the test that the doctor talked about, it sounds like a very accurate test. That's the kind of test that you want to deploy to try to figure out just what percentage of people have been exposed to coronavirus. It has a high what we call specificity. So you're likely to get fewer false positives with that test. And what it means is when people do take the test and it says that they have antibodies, they're more likely to actually have antibodies using a test like that. Can it be replicated more broadly? Absolutely. Um, but it's a big undertaking. And doing those kinds of seroprevalence studies are a big undertakings. The CDC is doing one right now nationally, where they're trying to get an, a representative sample nationally to get a sense of what the background rate of exposure is across the entire country to coronavirus. We've said on this show, and I still believe, that when we do this at a national scale, we're likely to find anywhere from 2 to 5% of the population as a whole has been exposed to the virus but in hot spot cities like new york louisiana um, parts of louisiana new orleans miami chicago detroit you're likely to see much higher percentages and the data that came out of new york recently showing as many as 21 percent of new yorkers may have been exposed to coronavirus that might be a little high but it's not not too high it's probably somewhere between 10 and 20 percent of new yorkers right now have been exposed to this infection so lastly, take the temperature,
3: if, if you would, Texas and Iowa are getting set to reopen. Other states are certainly thinking about it and formulating their own plans, and they'll put them into practice, certainly in the days, if not weeks
5: ahead. Where are we on this issue? How do you feel about the process of reopening our country for business? Well, look, a lot of the data, and a lot of the modeling assumes what we call a symmetric epidemic curve, which is a sharp up and a sharp down. And that was the experience in China. Uh, the epidemic grew very quickly and it came down very quickly. And a lot of the models that we're looking at, like the IHME model, are based on the China experience. But what we're going to experience here is much more like what Europe's experiencing, where it was a sharp up, but a very slow gradual down. And so we're plateauing right now across the country. We're seeing some gradual declines in parts of the country, like New York. But it's likely to be a very gradual decline in a number of new cases. We're still seeing 30,000 new cases nationally, and we're still seeing upwards of 2,000 deaths a day. So while things are slowing and moving in the right, right direction, it's going to be weeks probably before we have a sustained decline in new cases and a low, low enough number of new case, cases in most parts of the country that we really feel confident. Now, certain states are doing better than others and they are in a position to start reopening parts of their economy. But really, it's just a handful of states that are in that position right now. Why the difference though, between Europe and China? Is it a result of the kind of lockdowns and when they happened uh, in those countries? That's probably the biggest factor. Uh, China took much more aggressive steps and were able to implement them in a much more uniform way, and the Europeans and the United States had leakier mitigation steps. We didn't implement them as quickly, and um, we had more leakage from those uh, steps. We weren't able to do the same things, and we didn't want to do the same things that China did. They had a very harsh response that just wouldn't have been able to be implemented in this country. So we're likely to see a more gradual decline in new affections as a consequence of that. It's good to see you, as always, Dr. Gottlieb. We'll see you uh, tomorrow night, I hope. Thanks a lot. All right.
3: That's Dr. Scott Gottlieb joining us there. Well, today, you know, in Georgia, restaurants and movie theaters are able to reopen. That's in addition to the other non-essential businesses that restarted their businesses on Friday. Joined now by the Savannah mayor, Van Johnson. Mayor, it's good to have you on our program this evening. Thank you for being here.
1: Thank you so much.
3: How are things going in your city?
1: Well, it's another beautiful day in Savannah. Um, There are businesses that are open. Uh, People are starting to come out um, and we're doing the best we can with what we have.
3: Yeah. Were you in favor of the restrictions being lifted when they were in the state of Georgia?
1: Absolutely not. Um, The data was very clear, um, not only nationally, but also in the state of Georgia, that we had not reached the thresholds of 14 days of plateaued infections, nor have we really embarked really well on widespread testing. Therefore. Uh, it was been my opinion that Georgia was not a good candidate for uh, early reopening.
3: Part of this story down in Georgia was the fact that some mayors say they weren't told by the governor ahead of time that he was going to uh, make the announcement, in fact, that, that he did. Did you speak to Governor Kemp before the the, the ruling, if you will, uh, came down or the directive?
1: I have not spoken to uh, Governor Kemp since this started. As a matter of fact, um, you know, we learn of them here in Savannah um, during the press conferences, just like uh, most of the mayors in this state. Um, today, he had another press conference in which more things were announced, and again, we find out about them, and then we have to react to try to comply.
3: Yeah. So, how are you dealing with that?
1: Well, we're doing the best we can. We realize this is a uh, unprecedented situation. I'm sure that the governor is doing what he thinks is best. We have a responsibility here in Savannah to take care of our residents. We've been keeping the faith, but we've been following the science. So we realize businesses have to open um, at some point uh, for economic viability. We want them to do it in the safest way possible, and we want to be prepared to help them do that. When do you think that would be? Do you have an idea? Well, most of the contemporary models that I looked at um, has indicated that you know, mid-June would probably be uh, the best um, time to do it if we maintain on our current level. Uh, it's around the time that the Georgia General Assembly will go back in session, um, which is a little over a month from now.
3: I'm wondering how your your citizens are, are feeling. from From those you're speaking to, are they in agreement with you that it's too early? Or are they in agreement with the governor that they need to get back to business at some point? The, their livelihoods are at stake, regardless of you know what kind of businesses they're trying to open, small or medium or large. What are you telling them?
1: Well, I think that people are very, very clear that they want to go to work. They want to resume some sort of normalcy, but they want to be able to do it in a time and a place that's safe. And I think that's reasonable. We want our businesses to be successful, but we know that businesses are built upon people. And so, for customers and for servers and for um, the, the owners, we want to make sure that you know their businesses are able to operate in a safe manner. Yeah, we wish you well, uh,
3: your residents as well, uh, Mayor Van Johnson, the City of Savannah. We appreciate your time this evening.
1: Thank you so much, sir.
3: All right, we'll talk to you again soon. This CNBC special report: Markets in Turmoil. We'll be right back.
4: Straight ahead. A sight from sea to behold. A line like the world has never seen. Plus, there's not a chef alive that wants to sit at home and do nothing. A chef steps up. What he cooked up will amaze you. And your kids are going to summer school this year? Before the break, images from around the USA on day 120 of this global pandemic.
3: Welcome back. Here are tonight's headlines on the virus. Boeing's CEO says demand from travelers willing to fly could take two to three years to recover. New York cancels its June 23rd Democratic presidential primary, saying since Bernie Sanders suspended his campaign, there was essentially no point. And the NBA says it won't reopen team practice facilities before May 8th. Millions of restaurant workers across the country have been laid off due to the coronavirus. Now, one chef is stepping up, converting his five restaurants, all shut down, into relief kitchens for out-of-work cooks, servers, and bartenders. Here's Chef Edward
1: Lee. There's not a chef alive that wants to sit at home and do nothing. That immediately turned into, well, what do I do? The first night, we had about 250 people show up for meals and supplies, anything from diapers to toilet paper, soap, cereal. And by the second night, we were feeding 400 people an hour. It was, it was heartbreaking. We had full walk-ins full of food. So we were just starting this program just to feed our own. Makers Mark, who is a partner with us in, in our nonprofit, got in touch and said, what are you doing? and we explained how we had turned our uh, restaurant, 610 Magnolia, into a relief kitchen, and that we were serving meals to any restaurant worker uh, who had been laid off, feeding you know, hundreds of people a night um, that need this food and supplies as well.
3: Chef Edward Lee tonight stepping up. Oil tumbling below $13 a barrel today, and tonight we have unbelievable images from across the world, lines and lines of tankers at sea. Our own Brian Sullivan has more on what is an extraordinary time, Brian, in the oil patch.
8: It really is, Scott, a good evening, everybody. I mean, these are sites that have never been seen, and oil tankers stretching for miles off the coast of Long Beach, California, outside of Los Angeles. Call this the petroleum paparazzi, if you will. This is Coast Guard footage taken a couple of days ago. You can see they're within sight of the shore. Now, look closely at these ships. Some of them are full, depending on where they sit in the water. Some of them are empty, but it is truly stunning. Why are they sitting off the coast of California? Because many of these ships are being used as floating storage. As you have heard, the world awash in oil, running out of places to put it, and those big ships are one place to do it. In fact, get this, guys, the going rate to charter one of those massive ships was about $25,000 a day a couple of months ago. Today, you want to charter one of those To sit off the coast of L.A. and store oil, it could cost you upwards of $250,000. Now, as awash in oil as the United States is, with oil prices falling, there is, unbelievably, guys, more on the way. According to our partners, tanker trackers and marine traffic, taking a look at satellite images, there are upwards of 40-plus million more barrels of oil, mostly coming from Saudi Arabia. Currently in the Suez Canal, there are satellite images and maps showing those red dots those are ships most of them saudi who are offloading oil because they need to lighten up to get through the suez canal they'll put the full amount of oil back on and then steam mostly toward the united states scott as you know the price of oil has collapsed demand destruction has been rampant driving flying shipping all reducing the the need for refined fuels and i think it's probably pretty amazing scott given those sites that with the amount of storage filling up within weeks in the United States, there is that much oil still on the way.
3: Amazing images. Um, Looks like the tankers themselves are socially distancing, Brian. With all that oil on the way, that doesn't sound like this situation is going to get any better anytime soon.
8: No, it is not. In fact, many of the people I know that you talked to in Halftime Report, that we talked to in Worldwide Exchange and otherwise are saying it is highly likely, not a guarantee, but likely that the current oil contract, which is June, could do what May did, and that is go negative. The reason, and people find this hard to believe, here's the best, I guess, analogy I can give. You buy something online. You want it. It costs 30 bucks. As the delivery guy is walking up to your door, you realize not only do you have no place to put it, but it's going to cost you money to keep it somewhere in your house, so you give the FedEx guy, say, 50 bucks to take it away that's effectively what the oil market has done in going negative and given the current situation scott unless demand picks up it is not out of the question at all that oil prices go negative and deeply negative
3: yet again well wow. we appreciate your reporting brian sullivan thank you very much sure there is much more ahead on this cnbc special report markets in turmoil
4: as a new beef factory falls New questions tonight about the safety of these plants and the security of our food supply. One former top government inspector joins us next. Plus, is your child going to summer school? See what the woman who runs one of this country's biggest school districts says. This CNBC special report, Markets in Turmoil, is coming right back.
9: For more than a decade,
2: If we start to see panic buying...
4: ...new reason to worry about the safety and security of the food supply.
2: We are going to have uh, an issue on our hands.
4: Tonight, a former top food inspector on how bad things are getting. There is a very strong interest in coming back. We're hearing this from literally thousands of our students. Some top educators push for students to come back to school. Also tonight, a new outbreak in China... This CNBC special report continues. Once again, here's Scott Wapner. Good to have you back with us after a pretty good day on
3: Wall Street. Let's take you to the future, see how we're shaping up for the open tomorrow morning, a mixed picture, mostly flat across the board. I mentioned stocks rising today after investors focused on the economy reopening, the Dow adding more than 350 points. Financials and real estate were the best performing sectors, each up more than 3%. Well, more meat plants shutting down tonight as workers get sick. That prompted Tyson Foods to warn, quote, the food supply chain is breaking. Gerald Mand is a former undersecretary for food safety and currently teaches at Tufts. Sir, it's good to have you with us tonight. Are we uh, on the cusp of another crisis here in terms of food supply?
9: Well, thank you, uh, Scott. And I think that um, we need to take precautions and there's steps we need to be taking um, that we haven't taken. And particularly the Department of Agriculture and its Food Safety Inspection Service, which I help lead, uh, needs to do more. It's in a particularly strong position in that it has an inspector in every plant. Uh, but so far it hasn't used that um, resource to protect the safety of workers at the plant, or even their own inspectors.
3: We've got a couple of issues on, on our hands here. We have millions of pounds of food that is being taken out of the supply while these plants are closed. And then even when they reopen, we need to make sure we're taking care of our workers. How can we better do that?
9: Well, that's a great point. You know, people hear that there's plenty of food and there is. If you look at food from the farm to people's uh, dining room tables, we have the food on the farm. Uh, but what's been clear from the beginning is the risk we face is the workers who um, bring the food from the farm uh, to the processing and to our homes. And as more people become sick, Uh, they are at risk. And so we need to make it a high priority to protect them. Uh, The Department of Agriculture hasn't done that so far. It was in a unique position because it had inspectors in every plant and it could have been taking steps uh, to work with CDC, to work with OSHA, uh, to put in place guidance that these plants were taking uh, to protect their workers. That hadn't been done soon enough. And so now we have uh, the current uh, problem. But steps need to be taken uh, now. You
3: worried about the food supply chain yourself, whether it relates to pork, beef, or
9: or, or poultry? Well, I think there are going to be disruptions. We've already seen those. I've seen them in the grocery stores near where I am, outside of Washington, Uh, D.C. The meat supply is not as stable as it was. Things are there and not there. Um, But I think we can um, take steps now to make sure that things get better, not worse.
3: The longer the plants stay closed, how quickly do you start to have more severe disruptions in the supply chain?
9: Yeah, I think you're already starting to see some of that. A a good number of plants are closed. Um, um, You've read stories. We've read stories about uh, uh, growers, producers of of animals having to uh, kill those animals without putting them into uh, slaughter. And, And I think those are starting to be seen at stores. Uh, But so far, and hopefully, we can keep it at a point where you're just not going to have your choice of the same cuts that you usually look for, but you'll see a supply. Uh, But it does require. Joint urgent action, uh, not just by CDC working with OSHA or FDA, who each separately put out guidance today, uh, but those agencies with USDA's Food Safety and Inspection Service should be working together as one uh, team, and they're not.
3: Yeah, the other tragedy here is food waste. That's what uh, the Tyson chairman mentions today. Here we have people who are going hungry in our country who are waiting in their cars for hours in lines at at makeshift food banks and yet we have food waste because it can't be processed because of this crisis that seems to be developing
9: absolutely and it's another area where the department of agriculture could play such an important role because they 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 you know they're we're taking from the farm Uh, they have people that are there in every state, um, working with the farm in every community, as well as people in places like meat packing plants. But it is, you're right, it's heartbreaking to see the amount of food being plowed under. I saw in a, a facility near us in Delaware um, or a farm, more than 2 million chickens were having to be uh, killed and not put into a uh, slaughter. And and yet it, you're, you're exactly right. People don't have enough food. In order to solve that, it's, it's not something that one a governor can do or one community can do. We need a strong national strategy, and we haven't had that.
3: Quickly, should we be worried about prices going up as a result of these shortages?
9: Well, I hope not. As I said, there's plenty of food out there. But as people, things become in short supply, there's the opportunity for people to charge more.
3: Gerald Mann, good to have you on our program this evening. Thank you for your time. Great. Thank you, Scott. Right, we'll talk to you again soon. This is CNBC special report. Markets in turmoil. We'll be right back.
4: How is your child going to make up all that work they missed? Is summer school in your plans? The chancellor of one of this country's biggest school districts joins us next. Plus, a new outbreak in China. We're live in Beijing tonight. Before the break images from around the world on day 120 of the coronavirus crisis.
3: Most schools in this country have been shut down for at least a month. Many states say they'll be closed for the rest of the academic year. Joining us now is Maria okay. Karstarf, and she's the superintendent of Atlanta Public Schools in Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, superintendent, it's good to have you on tonight. The president tonight suggesting that kids should be going back to school at some point this year. Do you agree?
10: Um, no. Here in Atlanta, and uh, we have uh, our own challenges that we're facing. We're a capital city And we have large numbers of black, brown and poor kids who already don't have great access to health care. And and while we appreciate, you know, all that people are doing around the pandemic, what we know for our children is that uh, the best place for them and their families is to um, continue to stay in place at home. Um, so that we can actually manage the virus better and ensure that we actually have an opportunity to do as much as we can over the summer and into the next school year.
3: Are you suggesting tonight that you will cancel the remainder of the school year in Atlanta?
10: By order of our governor on April 1st, we were all directed as pre-K through 12 institutions uh, to close for the remainder of the school year. So at least our governor's order still has us in um, in our homes, uh, teleworking, teleschooling, and, um, and offering uh, a lot of support to our institutions. Um, however, for what it's worth, it is just, um, there are a lot of things that we are seeing that where we had vulnerabilities and inequities at the outset in, uh, in our large urban centers. And, uh, and of course the virus has only exposed uh, more of the challenges that these, that our public school systems have across our country.
3: How are you dealing with kids who may not learn what they need to to step up to the next grade? How are you going to deal with that?
10: Yeah, so we are doing a ton of work around professional learning to uh, improve the skills of our teachers. I mean, rightfully so. They are struggling. This was a big shift in a very short period of time. And we're also offering to our students the opportunity to continue to build on and improve their grades. So we're making sure that we hold children harmless if they were not able uh, to um, be uh, where we wanted them to be by the end of the school year, but we're not going to take away from them um, after a certain date uh, in our, uh, in our grading period. And we're also doing our best to offer uh, virtual learning opportunities through a uh, virtual academy. And we're continuing to build up our uh, devices uh, for our students so that they have more information on those devices to be able to use when they're away from us.
3: Thinking about the so-called summer slide being even worse this year, it's been a bit of a slide because schools have been closed. Now you're dealing with the summer. I'm wondering how you're thinking about that and any chance that there would be any sort of summer school if you are able to reopen at some point in July or August months.
10: Well, we're making real-time changes during the current school year, so we've adjusted our instructional schedule so that teachers are doing virtual teaching and learning four days a week, and we take the fifth day uh, for students who need more remediation, for teachers to hold office hours to support our special education students, English language learners, or any kid who just needs a, a little bit more uh extra support, including their parents who have been struggling uh, trying to manage all of this at home. But when you couple that with uh, with kids being out um, for the summer without any kind of summer structured program, uh, it is pretty um, sobering. We have all, many of our partners, the great partners we work with for enrichment and for uh, remediation support in the summer, have told us they can't support a virtual system design they you know they don't even have the programming in place and that's um, that's challenging for them but it's also the challenge of us still trying to get devices into the hands of kids and making sure that we have quality connectivity that's something that our poor communities do not see as a norm the um, the telecoms and and all of the related um, infrastructure needed for connectivity to be able to do virtual learning and teleworking um, has been a real challenge for us Mm -hmm. in our district.
3: We wish you and your district well, Superintendent. Thanks for the time this evening.
10: Thank you. Thanks for having me. All
3: right. It's our pleasure. We have breaking news right now from Phil LeBeau on the auto industry. He is on the phone. Phil, what do you have for us?
7: Scott, multiple sources tell us that leaders of the big three are targeting a restart of production at North American Auto Plants of May 18th. Now, there's a couple of big caveats here. The first one being that some of the automakers, like Ford, have said, look, we haven't reached a final agreement. The UAW tells me there is no definitive start date that has been set. And all of this hinges on where coronavirus is in various locations around the country and how comfortable both the automakers And the auto workers are come mid-May about safety protocols and keeping everybody safe. But again, they are tentatively targeting May 18th as a possible beginning again of production for automobiles here in North America. Scott.
3: All right. Good news, Phil. Thank you. We appreciate that breaking news from our Phil LeBeau. We do have details up next on a new outbreak in China of the coronavirus. That's next. Welcome back. Just two weeks after Wuhan reopened, parts of China are seeing a resurgence of the coronavirus. Our Eunice Yun is in Beijing for us, where it is tomorrow morning. Eunice?
11: Thank you so much, Scott. Well, towns and communities along the Russia border are now in lockdown, with several tightening their quarantine regulations for incoming travelers. The city of Harbin, with its population of 11 million, now requires that returnees from overseas be quarantined for 28 days. And some areas with a land crossing with Russia are extending that to 35 days. Now, hospital authorities in Harbin have come under criticism for letting their guard down with new patients. One at 86, seven-year-old man was taken into the hospital. He eventually infected more than 80 people. And some of those people ended up seeking treatment um, at other parts of the country. Now, other Chinese provinces have followed suit by tightening their quarantine regulations as well. Beijing City, for example, is asking that anyone coming from overseas or the epicenter Wuhan quarantine at home for an extra week. This is after two weeks in centralized or government-appointed hotel quarantine. Now, that. That has just added uh, to the speculation here now that the leadership could announce this week new dates for the National People's Congress. This is a big political event that normally takes place in March. Uh, The talk is that it could be held in uh, mid to late May. And setting the dates would be seen as a sign that the government here is feeling more confident that it's contained the virus. But then again, Scott, a lot of that is going to be dependent on whether or not it gets the infections along the northeastern border under control.
3: Eunice, good to have you with us once again. Appreciate your reporting. Uh, that's Eunice Yun uh, re- reporting in uh, Beijing, day 120 of the coronavirus crisis. For all of us here at CNBC, I'm Scott Wapner. Please stay well. And Shark Tank is next.
10: What's on the horizon for financial markets?